This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Bill Prince. He's the former editor of GQ UK. Uh, he's the acting editor of Wallpaper, and he just wrote a book on the latest anniversary of the Audemars Piguet Royal Oak. Bill, welcome. Good morning. I, it's morning where I am, Ariel, but I'd like to say good day to you. Well, it is, it is, is late at night for me. Um, as we know, time is relative. That's something that we learned very quickly in our international industry. Also, that time is a human invention, right? I think that's something that I continue to impress upon myself, that similar to the car, the wristwatch is something the humans invented, and we keep tweaking it and playing with it and arguing about the best way that it's supposed to work and look. And that is sort of our, our jobs. We are at the intersection of consumer and product maker of all kinds of stuff. For me, it's mainly it's watches. For you, it's been a few more things. And it's like we're sort of, we're like uh, uh, liaising in this very strange conversation that these two groups are having, right? Absolutely. And let's not forget that time is a concept, but it's something that we're very aware of all the time. No pun intended. As our own body clocks just work through the gears of our lives. And, you know, we, we want to make sense of that process, I think, internally, don't we? I think there's a real reason why we are fascinated by measuring time because we're so aware of its passing and um but, you and but I, it's like it's it's a it's a human construction we invented this notion of the elapsation of time like in physics you know they they argue that time doesn't exist it's not a, it's not a variable in a lot of physical laws so the the watching time pass creating the the units of time we have it's all something we created, and then we created the tools to actually measure it and then display it. So it's like layers and layers of human invention. Yeah, yeah. And um, we're surrounded by the signs of time moving all the time. I keep saying the word time. But, you know, this. I, I, we agree on this, Ariel. There is a reason why we are so fascinated by measuring time. It's because it's, it's one of the very few things that we cling on to as being something that we want to and need to understand. And uh, we constantly reflect and revise what time means to us, you know, how we how we actually embody the passing of time in the sense that we're kind of, we always talk about, oh, that went very quickly. Oh, God, this day's dragging. You know, we, we, we just, as humans, we are just incredibly conscious of the fact that time is ticking away. It's everywhere. Agree? It's everywhere. Yeah, I do. I do. And, you know, that brings me back to the notion of time is relative, exactly what you're talking about, where you're having a good time and things seem to pass very quickly and things aren't happening very fast and everything appears to be happening very slowly. And it leads me to the sort of other end of it is the sort of like fetishization we have over measuring instruments and how unlike many of the measuring instruments in our life, the watch has become a fashionable one. And that's sort of mm. this interesting other side that I think you have a big background in is this intersection of fashion object and measuring instrument. There's like, the, you're, am, I, am I wrong to say that there aren't other measuring instruments which have become as uh, fashionably sexy? Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, we do elevate, uh, I suppose the term we'd use today is we premiumize things that we consider to be important in our lives. And they can be 
they can be icons and relics or they can be incredibly contemporary items, whether it's a, a, a smartphone or in this case, a watch. So we do tend to go after the things that we think define and in some way uh, refine how we want to present ourselves. But yeah, to your immediate point, is there another measuring instrument that we uh, spend so much uh, in this case, money and objective uh, time and interest on. I can't think of one. Uh, it, it does lock into a sort of a, a broader fascination with technology and human endeavor and how, depending on its relative usefulness, I always think of arms in this, and I will, I'll be careful how we talk about armaments, but, you know, the development of personal armory uh, is one of technological progress because personal armory, whether it was a stiletto or a beretta or a, uh, whatever, or a purdy shotgun, you know, at the time it talked to a relevance that made that a priority instrument. And, but the development of it talks to a very technological advancement in that area. We have no need now for personal armory. So we look for other items, other objects that, that we, we feel do uh, have some relevance to us and that we therefore we can have some kinship with and then we really do pour a lot of our intelligence into developing them and i think for instance uh personal transportation is obviously an obvious example we can see evidence of that everywhere and clearly the wristwatch is something that we all consider i think beyond our fascination with the passing of the days and the years we we also frankly need an organizing principle as the human race in order to stay true and to stay productive because fortunately that's what's driven us forward and unfortunately that's what we had to keep doing to drive ourselves forward so the organizing principle of time is central to most people's lives not everyone's clearly but most people's which has allowed us therefore to fetishize the measurement of time which allows us to go after beautiful watches and i think that's how we possibly for many of us how we argue the case for ownership while we're getting all philosophical about time, I'm wondering if the era of us not needing personal armaments has passed and that might be returning to in terms of some people's opinion because that'd be interesting if we started carrying decorative knives knives and guns around with us. Well, again, I, I, as I say, I'm nervous talking about this particular area. Thankfully, it's not something that's a, 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 an immediate concern where I, I am and I live. I'm very fortunate to be able to say that. But I reflect on a brand such as Beretta, who's who obviously today make Top, top of the line uh, firearms that started, you know, several centuries ago producing personal uh, weaponry, which at that time would have been knives, swords, daggers. So that one brand has seen through this need for one item, but they have kept true to what that item needed to be. And I think if you, this is an area that you're far more expert than I am, but even in the, even in the uh, context of personal timekeeping, we can see how the development of the wristwatch grew out of something which was much more uh, rarefied, much more exclusive, much more exclusive, and talked to the consideration around time that was really only important to, you know, a vanishingly few number of people for whom being able to measure time and being able to record time and therefore sort of impart on their populations um, what was required of them by what their measuring of time told them uh, created. So we're talking about sort of um, from from any number of clocks driven by any number of means of uh, measuring time down into the today's contemporary wristwatch, whether it's mechanical or quartz. You know, I think it's so important about what you're saying is it proves that there's a lot of intelligence in fashion journalism. Like 
people like Bill are thinking the right way about these things. Now, there's there's a misconception out there that there's not a lot of intellectual pursuit in fashion journalism, and there is some of that for sure. But I think what's important to say is, is it's people like Bill that have built up like the men's fashion institutions that they are, a really sort of like deep, culturally interested look at these things that men fetishize. I don't, is, and I wish there was a name for it. Maybe there is, I don't know it, but hobbyists, I think is just too, it, it, it's just not specific enough. It's this, it's this becoming an expert in these things that men or women or anyone in general just really care about, like some type of like consumer academic like is there a word out there mm. for it i don't even i don't know well traditionally the word that would be used in its truest sense would be amateur amateur to love and to bring love to something has then amateur obviously now has taken on a negative connotation because it's conflicted with professional um but amateur for the love of is i think is at the heart of this of this journey and i hate that's a buzzword okay path forever isn't it but the i the I mean, I suppose this is really interesting because it comes back to the ling linguistics around how we talk about these objects that we frankly fetishize. Uh, we used to talk about connoisseurship, and that was that was heralded as a as as a that comes from the age of deference when we would defer to a connoisseur for the simple fact that they had the knowledge, they would built up that knowledge, and we're talking about a time when finding out things was really difficult compared to where we are today, Ariel. But I don't think connoisseurship really fits the brief at all. I think I think curiosity is an important word that that I suppose separates some of us from those that don't quite understand why we care so much about certain things. And I think that term curiosity now leads to a broader term, which is the I think is fast replacing the notion of connoisseurship, which is community, which is that connoisseurs still exist clearly, but they exist now in an ecosystem and they reflect one end of a, of a fascination. And the, the professional connoisseur? Possibly, yeah. The, the connoisseur now who can professionalize themselves by dint of having spent probably in our arena more time than most studying wristwatches. That elevates them to connoisseurship. But the community around them who now have access to not all clearly, but and none of the wisdom and experience that can only be accrued through time. But the community has far more access to many of the stories um, that the connoisseur will have had to go to the library to discover 10, 20 years ago. And that community now is populated by any number of different, I suppose, character types, clearly, but also the terminology that you're searching for, which is what is this name we give to people who find some uh, sucker in, in, in discovery and, you know, uh, uh, emboldened by the fascination, as the phrase I'd use, is they... they they enjoy the challenge and it brings them joy. I mean, it brings them great delight to be a part of a community, as you say, to share their learnings, to build that community even further, but also to try and build out some of that connoisseurship that they can see others already hold. So I think it's a real, I think it's a melange and it's very kind of you to say so. I think the scrutiny that, that, um, that, that the culture has been placed on has always been there. It just constantly moves. I mean, Culture was considered to be something that was very high-end, it was high culture, it existed in the performing arts, it consisted in the visual arts. Um, now we talk about culture in a far broader sense. I mean, we talk about the culture of, 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 um, of hype, and we talk about the culture of drops, and we talk about the culture of rarity, and enforced rarity, and confected rarity. All of these things now have their own cultural heft. And I suppose that the, the watch 
world is not separate from that. So even within the watch world, there are there are there are pockets of understanding that mean people are only really interested in the super rare or the super old, whereas others can be interested in the whole vista of what wristwatches represent. I think the distinction that that we could make is that um, with the change in the culture requires a different understanding of where that particular culture came from. And I think some of the uh, older cultural imports, whether it is in the visual arts, whether it's in the performing arts, you know, required a deep, deep understanding of, of cultures that perhaps now we're separated from by centuries. Uh, others require really deep understanding of, of human ambition and motivation set into a cultural context, which, which is fashion, perhaps. Unfortunately for me, wristwatches also requires an understanding of technicity, of mechanical engineering, micromechanics. I mean, where do we stop? Chemistry, physics. I mean, it, there is so many elements that are wrapped up in the construction of a wristwatch that it's really hard to come up with a sort of a convening thought around what it represents. I mean, I think the blah, I think the, I think the shallowest way that I can talk about it is that having written about many topics in my time is the way when you dig into, again, no pun intended, the way winemakers approach winemaking. I mean, there are so many different elements that go into making a good wine and it's meteorology, it's it's the soil quality. It's, and then it comes down to the simple human engineering of planting and, and protecting and picking and processing, storing delivering and then serving i mean there's so many different elements discrete qualities discrete professional <laughs> needs that go into making a fine wine the people who have no interest in wine or don't even drink wine would give no conscious thought to and it's quite understandable why they wouldn't but until you're really impressed on yourself the different elements that have all the different things that have to go in the right direction <laughs> and stay in the right direction um you know it's, wine's it's a good analogy simple. for a lot of stuff it's a good it really analogy because it really it's is, gotta yeah. it's, so many, like a watch to be correct needs to be like a good wine in a lot of ways. Okay, so I have to respond uh, two ways. First, a note and then a response. My note is the term I got stuck with in terms of the f- professional term for me was was blogger. I don't know that's the best mm. one, but that's what I got stuck with, yeah. blogger. And I think you're making a very interesting point when you're talking about the culture, especially around watches. And, and what I want, the point I want to say about this is it's the actual verbal discussion around watches which defines the watch hobby community today. In contrast to the past, prior when there was watch media, the culture was visual, right? So what, mm. what do I mean by that? Today, a bunch of people around the world can read the same opinions about a watch. Whereas in the past, a bunch of people around the world wouldn't have had any joint conversation about it, but they would all have looked at the mm. same watches, if they ever got around to speaking to one another, they might feel the same way because they looked at the same watches from different places in the world. And today, it's they looked at watches and they heard conversations, the same conversations, the same opinions. And so as opinion leaders, you and me and, and others in the community, we are creating a verbal conversation, which is creating a richer culture. And there's all kinds of offshoots of that culture and manifestations of it, but it is all about the discussion around it. And the way you talk about wine or the way you talk about architecture or cars or whatever it is, is what defines the culture around it. And you obviously gravitate towards people who you like 
the conversations they have and the feelings they get out of these things. And that's what's interesting. It's the product and the emotions around it. And then the ecosystem is those people who like products and like the same emotions and gravitate towards one around one another. And I think that for me is why there's so many subcultures within the larger hobby that is watch love. I think that's a really, really, really well presented and very important point you made there about how, and it comes actually back to wine because the final experience of most people's enjoyment of wine is actually the uh, physical impression it makes as they pour it and as they appear into the, the liquid and then comes the taste. And I think for many, for many of us, our discovery of watches would have been visual because our understanding of watches just wasn't there. So that was inculcated in us that the appearance of a watch was critical to our understanding of the watch's importance or at least its uh, uh, value. And just picking up on your point about the verbal uh, revolution, the, the evolution of this shared love of watchmaking that is now being contextualized around the spoken word, is, isn't it interesting now how the use of watch references now has become sort of parlayed into firming up your critical understanding of watches. So we all talk about how different industries have their own codes. They talk about their own um, work in with little tells that show each other that they are part of the same community. I noticed when I used to write a lot about food and drink that chefs, nothing ever got fried. It got fried off. Nothing got nothing got braised, it got braised off. Just adding the word off in the sentence was a way that chefs contextualized what they were doing professionally away from what we would be doing in our own home kitchens. It's just one tiny example, but I used to recognize the tell when I heard it. And I think in, in recent years, what I've noticed about those that discuss watches, particularly now for a living, is that this understanding and ability to use the, the uh, particular reference numbers for the particular models is one of those tells. And it separates those that may have a passing interest from those who really understand what they're talking about. And that has only grown because there are a community who are sharing their thoughts around watches with each other and verbalizing it. So I think this is a really intrinsic and interesting uh, conversation to have. I, I, I wouldn't feel demerited by the term blogger. I think what's happened is we've atomized communication to such a degree now that every portal and therefore every conduit by which information can reach an interested party is a valuable one and i think what we're all doing together and i think people who don't recognize this uh do so at their peril because we are all organisms that are taking in hundreds of thousands of pieces of data a, a millisecond to understand the world around us and we're doing exactly the same with our uh, modern communications we're building out a picture from a huge matrix of different uh ideas, presentations, concepts, and actually, to be fair, and value systems, clearly, um, and basically on some, on some quite mercenary um, uh, platforms and footings. So what we're doing, frankly, is we're all editing the entire time. And we're very good. As human beings, we're extremely good at editing. We have to be because obviously we, our brains can only contain so much information and we're being in the data, visual and audible data all the time. So... But, um, but not everybody projects it, right? You and I yeah. are communication professionals, and what we do is we don't just tell stories. We tell stories in a palatable way that other people want to hear. We make a concept sexy. We could just as easily make it unsexy. And the watch brands and the companies that, that we, we work with oftentimes take for granted the fact that without a communication professional – 
their objects uh, might be out in the market, but don't have the conversation around them that leads to the appreciation. And we see so many instances of great products that take forever to catch on or, or really never catch on because of the lack of the positive conversation about it. And I think a perfect example, of course, is the topic of a book you just wrote about the Royal Oak uh, by Audemars Piguet that for probably half its lifetime was not exactly a stellar hit. It was out there. It was a nice product. But it, it, what needed to happen for the Royal Oak for it to become the hit that it undeniably is today? Thank you for that reference, Ariel. Yeah, the book Royal Oak, From Iconoclast to Icon, I think, as you say, describes that arc very well. Um, for many of your listeners, this will be a story they know extremely well. But for those who don't, as you say, in 1972, the watch launched. Um, the prevailing anecdote um, was that it wasn't a success at launch. I mean, we can go into many number of reasons why both it would have appeared not to have been a success, but also why it hadn't why you can you could argue it was a success, but just didn't appear to be one. Sorry, I'm garbling. To your point, Ariel, I think what happened goes straight back to what we've just been talking about, which is the idea that the story of the Royal Oak had to be communicated. People had to learn about the Royal Oak and had to discover that there was a rich tale to be told about why the Royal Oak was created, why only Odomar Piguet effectively could have produced the Royal Oak with all of the um, ingredients and the value system behind it that elevated it into a one-of-a-kind piece um, for several years. Um, and that journey, I think, also could only really start with the advent of a kind of a super class of mass communication, by which I mean there had to be developmentally uh, access to that storytelling, which came through the internet, um, and at the same time, a critical mass built from, as you describe it, these contrailing views that range from the connoisseurship of, of watch writing through to the more lifestyle-generated writing that picked up on the uh, value systems that watches were appreciatively gaining. And then finally, what the brands themselves wanted to communicate about their own histories and about their own uh, contribution to the world of fine watchmaking. And really, this really, um, and that was the credentializing moment around which I think the Royal Oak story really started to take, um, the tips of the wings started to lift. The wheels are on the runway, but you could see the wings start to rise. And I think that happened around 2012. Uh, well, I, I know from discussing it with the team at Odomar Piguet, particularly the heritage director, Sebastian Vivas, is that the idea that they could contain this story within a very, uh, well, it's a narrative that's still being uh, written, but that narrative started to really coalesce around about the 40th anniversary. And that's when all the tools that we would now consider to be second nature to a brand, but had not really been applied in quite such a vociferous way, were applied to the Royal Oak. And I'm talking about a, the exhibition that toured on the 40th anniversary and a lot of materials that Odomar Piguet and Sebastian and his team put forward from that moment on that built out the, uh, the, almost the, the ecosystem or certainly the sort of superstructure of the story of the Royal Oak that allowed people in. And as soon as people were in, they started to learn about the, the qualities and the uniqueness of its, of its origin, uh, of its mm -hmm. origins and its origination. Um, is that, that's the moment when I think it's, it started to build out that. And, you know, we've seen what's happened. We can talk uh, about the uh, extraordinary um, uh, elevation of the, of the Royal Oak as a sort of a prestige 
timekeeper that's now become a physical asset class in its own right. But I think what's really the heart of it is the fact that there was a period of discovery in which people could really access the story, to which hopefully this book adds uh, adds value because Sebastian and his team, as I say, uh, started around about that time in uh, 2012 to really go into the archive and to buy back documents and to talk to people who are still within the company in Brasu, who were there at the uh, pre-launch period, which we could discuss as briefly 67 to 72, and who were leaving the company around about that time, but were there to be asked the questions. Now we look back and we realize that what else um, could have been discovered if that conversation had started earlier and what brands could be discovering, discovering things for themselves if they're asking the people who are still around when they launch their important watches. You you said that only a company like Audemars Piguet could have launched something like the Royal Oak. I don't necessarily know what that means. I can guess, but I, I, I'd love for you to explain a little bit more about why that is and what the what sort of necessity what was the formula there? What was what needed to exist for something like this to be possible? I mean, I think that's a very interesting statement. Well, I guess the what what needed to exist in the case of NORP is what didn't exist, which is a huge volume of wristwatches, uh, which at the time would have predicated NORP as a, a supplier of, well, in the case of other brands, a mass-produced wristwatch. I mean, NORP made vanishingly few watches relative to the wider watch market throughout the 20th century. So that enabled NORP to... It was, it was presented, therefore, as an extraordinarily highly regarded and therefore highly finished watch that was made by Audemars Piguet. Um, so we're now talking about a moment when perhaps the market for watches was changing in the late 60s, very early 70s. And the demand for a watch that could go anywhere, that d- obviously didn't require hand winding, but much more importantly, was robust and waterproof. Um, all of these watches were being made by companies who had formerly made tool watches, watches for the military, watches that had then gone into industry. And we can we can think of immediately which watches we're discussing. But those were made in numbers that obviously massively, massively outnumbered uh, the watches that Odomar Piguet made at that point. Odomar Piguet were principally known as a, as a high-complication watch uh, manufacturer in Lubesu, um, who then made incredibly decorative pieces, some of which are actually reflected in the uh, innate design of the Royal Oak, if we think about the integrated bracelet, for instance. But that was their market. That was their business. So for Audemars Piguet to come to market with a watch that was in itself a robust, waterproof, self-winding timepiece, time only, in the initial iteration of the 5402, uh, was a great demarker of what Audemars Piguet were planning to do next within the context of its, of its watch business. I mean, they, there was no sense at the time that they were putting everything on red when they launched the uh, Royal Oak. It was a considered response to a request for a watch from a market, principally in Italy, but other parts of, uh, of, of Europe, for a watch that could go anywhere that had to retain the idea of the qualities, the enshrined value that an Audemars Piguet represented. And to bring those two together, I use the term audacity and accomplishment. There's the audacity of bringing a watch that is designed by Joel Genta in the way he designed it to market, which is an unusual design by any standards. We could go into that forever. And then there's the accomplishment of Audemars Piguet's watchmaking being 
placed inside of this case. So we have the vessel, which is Gerald Genter's design for the case, and then have, we have almost the, the treasure within the vessel, which is the movement, the 2121, which was the date version of the 2120, um, which gave us what, what it was at the time, the world's thinnest uh, automatic movement with date, inside a case construction that was modified from what would have previously been a very solid piece of executed steel as a tool watch into the sublime iteration of the varying facets and, and shapes and formulas from classical uh, architecture right through to modernism that Gerald Genter produced in the design of the OLX. So, very long answer. That's why I think it was extraordinary. And that's why it's a case of only Odemar Piguet would have been able to produce a watch that was able to be sold in steel for more than some of their gold watches and for many of the other marketeers' gold watches. It's interesting. And, and I'm thinking very carefully what you're saying here. And I think having as much context as possible around the formation of this product is is helpful. It's celebrated for its design today. But what I'm hearing from you is that the design brief was really one about functionality and durability. It had to do a certain number of things. Uh, it had to be useful for what we call sport today, which basically means you can get it wet and go outside and bang it around a little bit. But it still needed to look like a high-end object. Uh, did it become beautiful by accident, just because they had someone who you know knew what he was doing and really cared about it and maybe had a vision, uh, or was that really a big part of it? Is it is is they're like okay, anyone can make a, a functional watch, but we need to make one that's really pretty. I'm just trying to understand how the design element came into it. If it was sort of just like a beautiful accident, or that was really a big part of it from the beginning. Do you know, Aaron, I think that's one of the great beguiling mysteries of, of the story. I mean, so much so much we feel we know about this watch is predicated on what we now know the watch became or what it represented at the time and what it's come to represent. But drilling down into how the watch became is, is really, really an enticing uh, conversation to start. I think principally to your point, yes, I think there was, there was a uh, in, inevitably and quite correctly, there was at the very heart of this project, a sort of a, conf a conflict, which was a requirement for watches, as you've described it, something that did sit more naturally, perhaps, in the marketplace at that point, uh, when people did require something that uh, they didn't have to think too much about, or perhaps even didn't reflect back on a notion of a notion of high-value watchmaking that had to stay in gold or other precious metals, and was principally brought out. Um, as an emblem of success or in the most basic form, sometimes even long service because watches were often gifted as, uh, as retirement presents. So the market for watches had changed. So fundamentally, the service of this watch was in, in line with producing something that could be worn every day. Now, at the heart of Edomar Piguet was this absolute determination to maintain the highest standards in, in their watchmaking and also the highest standards in how those watches were presented and how they were viewed. So it, it would have been a non-starter to produce a watch that didn't enshrine all of the qualities that Odemar Piguet had been building into their watches since 1875. So you set up this, this drama in, almost in a sense. Uh, clearly the, uh, the 2120, the world's slimmest at the time automotive movement had been a journey in itself, uh, launched in 1967. And therefore to decide there and then, not only are we going to produce a robust watch, but it must also parade our excellence in ultra thin watchmaking was a decision they could easily have, um, uh, 
deterred, uh, diverted from or set aside for a few years. But no, they wanted to bring these two sublime elements together. The sublimity, of the, sublimity the sublime design of which I think we, we sadly, Joel Genta isn't here to, to ask. And I, I interviewed his widow, Evelyn Genta, who kindly pointed out she wasn't with Gerald at the time of the design of the watch. So we're really working on third party conversations and what Gerald shared uh, up to um, and prior to his, his death, but also what the company and, and those who were working at the company at the time shared about Joel Genta. The Joel Genta, as we know, was a, was a, to all intents and purposes, a freelance designer. He never considered himself a watch designer because he designed a lot of different things whilst being an artist in his own right. So, but he was employed by watch brands to design watches and he had worked with Edouard Piguet in the past and he'd worked on, um, jewelry pieces that if you look carefully you can see some of the, the codes of the, the royal oaks design as i say principally i think the integrated bracelet which mirrors how he created uh, uh several bracelet watches for odomar piguet before that but what we what we really see is someone who to all intents and purposes um designed watches uh almost instinctively and intuitively hand drawing them uh, fairly rapidly, Evelyn pointed out that he would draw a new timepiece almost on a daily basis. He didn't prototype his drawings in the sense that so far no one has been able to find multiple drawings for one design. He would draw a design for a watch and then draw another design for a watch. So really finding the essence of what brought Gerald Genta to this fully formed design in a single night, as described by um, George Golay, who requested the watch be designed for the three distributors who approached him initially with the uh, project, um, is is one of the great mysteries. Had he carried this around in his head? Had he been protecting it from others? Had he been saving it for his project? We don't know. I mean, it's and one of the greatest learnings from from writing this book, Era, is that journalists, particularly journalists who who uh, put a put a privilege on being able to uh, entertain and enlighten, um, they they tend to draw down on supposition um, where perhaps a more uh, historic, a, more, a, a clearer mindset would be, what do we know and what don't we know? And let's explain what we do know and let's, let's account for what we don't know. Um, sorry, let's account for what we do now. Let's explain what we don't know. Um, sorry, I'm judging around. So there's a lot of suppositions you could put in play now, but we don't know. And I think that is, again, a fascinating element to this watch. Now, right. I talk about the sort of five principles of the watch. The first is its singularity. That It was designed as one watch, the, the jumbo. I don't think at the time Joel Genta had any thought that it wasn't anything but a man's watch. But as we saw in 76 with the Jacques and Dimier collections that were being formed from that moment on, it clearly only, it wasn't only a men's watch. We do know that he was slightly confused by the brief in the sense that he was, that it, it was a, it was a watch that was going to stand up to some sort of physical scrutiny, but uh, he understood it had to be submersible. George Golay said there was no requirement for it to be submersible, but clearly Gerald had taken that on board because he designed a submersible watch. So there's a lot of sort of interesting dilemmas that, that crept into the design of the watch that weren't placed there by the initial request for the watch. So it's 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 a really it's a nice knot to try and untangle. Why did the watch look the way it does? And what was he drawing down on when it was designed? And even the naming process, which people can explain away with certain, you know, storylines around Joel Genta watching an old hard hat diver plunging into Lake Vermont. You know, that he had designed the watch, um, 
uh, prior to its naming, he, he wasn't designing from the name of a watch. So any reference of, of um, ships, which has been brought into play as well, slight porthole style designs, all of these things are sort of up in the air because the actual, the actual uh, lineage of the design process doesn't account for some of the arguments for why it looks the way it does and particularly why it was named the way it's been named. Are you familiar with other companies that are similar examples of where one product ends up being so popular, it sort of overshadows everything else the company does, and after a few years or decades, it basically becomes their, their main thing. You know, Audemars Piguet makes other watches, has made other watches, but I think we all agree that for quite some time now, uh, I don't know, 20 years at least, the Royal Oak and all the things that are within the, the Royal Oak umbrella are primarily responsible for the company's profits, and it is intrinsically tied right now to this unless it can sort of create another hit and maybe it never will. And if it never does, it still has a really good hit to, to live off for a while. Are there other examples of this in, in the sort of men's world, whether it's gadgets or fashion or something like that, or is this sort of a rare thing? No, I think, I think there is a, there is a crucible of designs. And I think we, we approach this conversation from the design dead side, I think, because, it's most reflective success on this level is most reflective in this continuity argument and continuity is what pleases the eye most. And so we talk inevitably, we talk about the 911, which was launched 10 years prior to the Royal Oak. And clearly if you put this 911 at birth next to the 911 today, they are quantumly different, but the evolution of the car still allows us to give have a considered view that the 911 is principally the same product. Nothing inside the 911 today would have been in the 911 at birth, but we still treat them as the same, almost sort of organism. Um, I, I always, I talked to, uh, for the book, I was talking to Mark Ronson about this, who's a, who's been a proud Royal Oak wearer for many years. And I asked him, why do we, you know, why do musicians who have the pick of the field in terms of, of instruments still play the Fender Stratocaster? Why do they search out, uh, the Rhodes electric piano? And he said it's principally not because they are brilliant designs that have stood the test of time, which clearly they are, but it's what the reason they are still credited as being great designs is because who is playing the instrument. And I thought that was a really insightful point around how we we can look at the Royal Oak and say, well, of course, it's a no-brainer. It's a beautiful object. It, it represents the highest end of Swiss watchmaking. But if no one was wearing it, or if only very few people were wearing it, or we didn't care about the people who are wearing it, it wouldn't have longevity. It, it, it has to come in, in, the, in the formula that nothing survives in isolation. Nothing can make it through 50 years in a vacuum. I slightly take issue with the idea that this, that, um, and I think without putting, I, I slightly take issue with the idea that the, that the Royal Oak has sustained not only itself, but Odomar Pigate by dint of it becoming an icon watch. I think the Royal Oak was in service to what Odenbar Piguet have allowed, has allowed the Royal Oak to become. Because make no mistake, when the Royal Oak was entering, uh, should we say the, the full rush of the river in the, in the mid seventies and thereafter, there was a lot else going on in, in watch, in, in the watch industry, no, not least the quartz crisis, um, which every watchmaker had to uh, pay attention to, not least Odenbar Piguet, who had up until that point been focusing on high, complications but it resourced the company never stopped resourcing its watchmakers to develop high complications and we can talk about the qp that 
um, uh, was entered, uh, introduced into the Royal Oak, uh, which was introduced in 1978, but entered the Royal Oak in the 80s. I think what's important is that all the time the Royal Oak has been making its uh, stately conquest of our minds, hearts and minds, and increasingly wallets, there's been this process by which Edouard Piguet has been building out its own expertise, its own value system. And we can look today at its watchmaking across the territory and also how it work, how it's been able to work outside of the idiomatic sense of the Royal Oak to produce complications for other manufacturers, but also, I think, to enshrine a sense and a sense of self and an approach to watchmaking that has actually acted as a, a centrifugal Sorry, as a sort of a centerpiece to switch watchmaking as a whole. It represents something of a higher order now because of its independence, because of its focus on high watchmaking. And if that story is told through the Royal Oak, and if it appears to those beyond uh, the kernel of, of watch aficionados to appear the only story it tells, then I think that's something that's reflective of the power of the Royal Oak, or particularly the power of, or perhaps our unnuanced telling of the Audemars Piguet story. I do think that there's far more that's going on than simply a successful model that has survived okay. 50 years. Because clearly there was a moment, I was talking to uh, Francois Benamias, the CEO, about this, which was when when he came back from the United States to take on, take, on, take over as global CEO of Audemars Piguet prior to the 40th anniversary. There was, contextually, there was a there was a, almost a sort of a, uh, extinction moment for the jumbo because the 2121 was no longer going to be produced. So do you do you disband 50, 40 years of watchmaking and say the Royal Oak no longer needs to be an ultra-thin watch? I mean, do you say that was for then, this is not for now? And he felt strongly, no, this is absolutely part of the sublime element of the Royal Oak story is the fact that it did was birthed in this particular model and this particular uh, resolution. And to give that up would be a mistake. So he and the board probably had quite a, a robust conversation about this because people talk about the Royal Oak as, as, as exemplifying one or one or other particular uh, qualities or elements. It tends to reflect what they're interested in, frankly, and whether that's ultra-thin watchmaking or design or, or, or success, whatever their functioning uh, uh, sort of auditing system is is what they take away from and believe makes the royal oak the royal oak but in fact it's a multiplicity of things and as course, as, as as was boiled down for me if you if you look people talk about the tapisserie dial for instance as being uh integral to the royal oak i mean there are any number of royal oaks that don't have tapisserie dials so clearly that cannot have been part of its functioning design principle it was a birth but it hasn't yet to be so beyond the octagonal bezel the, the, the eight hexagonal um, screw heads and the integrated bracelet that is what represents the royal oak those are the three uh the, those are the three legs on the stool should we say everything else is really in, up for play and up for grabs and that's what makes it so fascinating to see how Odomar Piguet have relished the opportunity to tell its own story through the fabrication of this particular model but this isn't the only model that they have ever produced nor will it ever be the only model they ever produced sure sure hi i'm Ariel Adams founder of a blog to watch and i've been using eBay to find watches for over 20 years eBay is one of the world's largest marketplaces for timepieces a luxury wristwatch is sold on eBay every seven seconds. And did you know there isn't any safer place to get watches? All luxury watches sold on the platform are covered by the industry's most robust customer protection policies. 
What makes eBay so confident is its exclusive authenticity guarantee service, which has a third party physically check each watch before it gets to you. In the United States, that's done through Stolen Company in Ohio. And among other things, it means that fakes are never an issue. eBay is also a great place to sell your watches, but you probably already knew that. Do what I do and check eBay before all of your next watch purchases. I want to go back to the interesting statement you made about the musician with his musical instrument um, mm -hmm. and that being sort of a good analog for watch popularity. You have to have the good watch, but then you have to have impressive people use or wear that watch. And it's that combination of things which allows you to penetrate culture in a way that gives you sort of mass appeal. And it begs a lot of questions about how do you replicate this process? Do you have any control out of making icons? Is, of course, there's a lot of it is up to chance. I've always believed that you need two things. First, you have to have a great product and you have to have great marketing, which is, you know, all the communication that gets people to know about it and then hopefully wear it. And I feel that being sort of nerd approved, you know, enthusiast, uh, having the enthusiast seal of approval is a necessary prerequisite to mainstream appeal. I guess that's not always the case, but what is your feelings on a product first needing to be very venerable to those that know the connoisseurs as a prerequisite for having big mainstream appeal. I think the Royal Oak is a watch lover's watch first. And then after that, it is something that, you know, a mainstream luxury buyer can get behind. Do you, do you at least agree that it's very good to aim to be enthusiast approved before you try to aim for any mainstream appeal? What are your feelings on that matter? Well, I, I think we're coming to the crux of the conversation area. I, I think I don't want to sound too, um, uh, this is, I worked in uh, GQ for many years, so I have, a, I have a masculine bias. And we are talking about a product in this case that was designed in, uh, initially for the, uh, the men's market. But I, I have found over time, and I apply this to myself, is that we all need permission to buy. We all need to have a front, front of mind thought as to why can I buy this? Not why should I, or not why do I need it, but why can I buy it? So we're always searching for our permission to buy. I, I'm speaking now to a certain mindset and it's the mindset that I have and there may be others but this notion of permission to buy can be answered you can give yourself permission for any number of reasons I deserve it I work hard I'm sad I need to cheer myself up but I'm interested in watches and connoisseurs believe this is a very important watch and I care about what connoisseurs believe so I shall buy this watch and I will tell my friends and family the reason I've given myself permission to buy this watch is because it's an important watch. So this permission to buy, which I think it was used, uh, a term that I, I saw written down many years ago, which I enjoy very much. And again, I apologize for the slightly heteronormative uh, language I'm using. But this idea of man's maths, it's a man's maths approach is you work out why you can afford it. And it's not about making concessions elsewhere. It's like, I need a Porsche 911 because of X. Now, I've done the man maths that allows me to buy a uh, Porsche 911 because I can tell you that its resale value will be very much higher than if I buy something of a lower order or that it's, it's, it's going to run better and longer because of the engineering that Porsche puts into its cars. Whatever the argument is, it all comes back to this notion of permission to buy. So to your point, Eric, I think, yeah, I don't think anything can get through life without all of the support mechanisms that we all need. And as I, as I entitled the first chapter of the book, you know, it takes a village to make a man. You know, it takes a village to produce something 
that has that kind of can step out into the world confident and strong that it's fit to go out into the world and that village in this instance as you say is a mixture of, of connoisseurship ratifying the the piece itself then made up of lots of other elements that bring in the eye and the mind and then finally the uh the, the wallet and that process is a, is i think is, is a growing as i said earlier it's a growing mixture it's an admix now of of marketing which we now refer to as storytelling we also need the reassurance coming back to this notion of um, uh, permission we need the reassurance that there's a community of individuals who also share our belief that this is important and that we should like to own it, should want to own it. And that admix is getting ever more, uh, I suppose, diffuse. We, 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 we're getting our information from so many different forms, uh, places now, some of which we can happily discard. And there are, there are those who will discard certain elements of the Royal Oak success story. But fundamentally, if they're discarding one element, it's probably being propped up by another. And I can assure you there are people out there who are very, gratified to know that, that there's a connoisseurship around the royal oak but it's a very little interest to them um for instance they're not they're not pursuing they're not after a series 5402s that that's not where their minds are set they would <laughs> like the, they would like the blue ceramic qp but you know that's a different tale so i i think you can't really go forward and i suppose coming back to mark's point about instrumentation and i was and fender's an interesting story i mean it produced the telecaster generally regarded although there had been others the, the first series produced solid body electric guitar that really met the met the needs of the market it improved on it quite rapidly with the stratocaster um which if you look at the uh the, the form factor and the equipment on the telecaster and compare it to the uh evolution ergonomically and technologically in the stratocaster with its three pickups you know, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a bold leap forward. Beyond which, um, obviously, Fender continued to populate their line with guitars. You know, they produced the Jaguar and the Jazzmaster. They, if you look at them, the form factor followed quite neatly the form factor of the Stratocaster, perhaps more than the Telecaster. But they, they experimented. They developed guitars. Some of them found their roles, found their place. I think now those guitars of the, the, the latter two I mentioned are more respected for their aesthetic perhaps, or perhaps for some of the players. Elvis Costello always played the, the jazz master. You know, so there's always this element that um they will have their own lives to live. But fundamentally, the Stratocaster is the form that goes forward. And why is this? And that comes back to Mark's point. It's because the people who decided that the Stratocaster was the best guitar were the people who did the most with it. And whether we're talking about Jimi Hendrix or, or Clapton or whoever, or John Mayer, who's another contributor to the book, who we should come on to because his knowledge and understanding for why we want these things is absolutely beyond you know, compare, in my opinion. Um, it's, it's absolutely self-evident that without that final factor of who is actually going to use this, who is going to take this product forward, it's not going to travel very far. And it's not just about fame or success, although that helps. I mean, Obviously, the Royal Oak was helped along greatly by Karl Lagerfeld buying his first 5402, then, then customizing it himself with a black finish, which uh, there are now known to have been multiple uh, versions of. But there are other wearers. And Gianni Agnelli, and this, this hasn't been uh, confirmed, but I do know that the Italian distributor um, 
was keen very early on in the history of, of watch marketing to make sure that certain individuals were able to wear the watch. Now, the, the, the level or the discretion that was shown in the gifting, I don't know. But I think the idea is that Gianni Agnelli was, received a watch, which he then probably wore. I can't, there's no evidence for this. I can't guarantee that we didn't buy it. But the idea is that the watch found itself onto the wrists of people that, that reflected what the watch stood, stood for. And that has continued. Giorgio Armani wore the watch. Alain Delon wore the watch. And today, any number of celebrities wear the watch. But that in and itself will only take you so far. To your point, the connoisseurship has to back up their decision because there are people who aren't affected or infected by whether a celebrity wears a particular watch or not. So it's it's a it's an interesting paradigm to pursue. I don't think there's a final, I don't think there's a final uh, recipe that one can draw up. God forbid, if you could, then people would be making out of the box successful watches every day of the week. Well, I, what I think you've done as well, which I think is important, is you summarized a lot of the discussions that have been going on at Automark BA for the last 50 years, uh, especially over the last 10 years where there's been sort of this concerted effort to position uh, the Automark BA Royal Oak as a body of work that has a history and a present and a future and has, you know, all these um, various elements to it and this sort of rich cast of characters that wear it around the world and have for a long time. Um, what changed at the company culturally to make it possible to focus on so much marketing and branding and, and positioning as opposed to strict, strict watchmaking? Because it sounds to me like some fundamental shift had to occur. Was it Ben Amias himself or was it other forces at, uh, at, at the, 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 the small board? Um, I think, to be fair, I think that's a question to ask Mr. Ben Amias, But I think what, what Francois Ben Amias told me was that when he arrived in the States to uh, take up the role of US CEO, 10 years before he uh, returned to Switzerland, you know, he discovered that the, uh, what we'd call today, the sort of visibility, the, the share of voice, fundamentally, people's knowledge or understanding of what Odemar Piguet represented was, was almost non-existent. Um, and it's interesting. And he felt that until you could communicate. You can't communicate around the watch until people know that the watch exists. So, you know, fundamentally, he understood that there had to be a drive towards putting the watch front and center, whichever watch that was. We're not talking specifically about the Royal Oak now, but it was about building out the story because um, it wasn't that the story had been lost. Is the story probably hadn't been told in the contemporary idiom, which was growing uh, its reputation through a mixture of of events. Um, collaborations and simple retailing, putting the watch in the window of a, of a retailer. And I mean, he, he described it in quite, you know, serious terms in the sense that the, 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 it wasn't that the retailers were in any way anti Odomarpide or anti the Royal Oak. It just, it wasn't notionally in their, in their, um, in their purview at the time. There were other watches that they were selling and doing extremely well with. So, and you were lucky in the UK because you had real watch culture there. You know, I started 15 years ago in the watch industry, and at the time, none of the brands had made any significant storytelling impact in America. I mean, you had some Rolexes and some Seikos and things like that, but Audemars Piguet, I mean, outside of a collector's circle, it had no brand image. And I saw, over that course of time, it penetrating culture, and I saw all kinds of things that brands did, from things that were just, they were lucky, to gimmicks, to 
expensive placements in movies and things like that. And every time I saw it, I celebrated because I knew it would all contribute to a, a, a critical uh, momentum of knowledge that would make them mainstream because these within you know times that we can remember high-end watches were still just esoteric as hell right totally and i think you reminded me of a much more important point that i should make have made earlier that Odomar Piguet's independence is both its strength and at times in its history possibly its greatest weakness and how Odomar Piguet repelled borders for want of a better phrase how Odomar Piguet managed to sustain itself during the period, well, primarily through a period of uh, war, recession, depression, revolution, and then into a period when the very essence of watchmaking changed fundamentally with, uh, with the Quartz Revolution, forced Odomar Piguet to be incredibly creative. And then we could come forward to the point where, as we, as we saw, Aaron, I think we probably came uh, to this in much the same way. The brands were being bought up by luxury groups that also had businesses outside of the watch business, which in which I suppose brought greater intel, marketing now, or just different ways of approaching the sell-through on high-end product. Um, at the same time, they had to learn how the watchmaking industry went about promoting itself, and they had to discover that. And we saw, as you say, we occasionally the gears would grind and we'd see some rather unusual approaches taken around the marketing of watches, which for us as connoisseurs perhaps were uh, primarily pieces of high-end engineering that had historic cultural significance. So uh, although we may have felt that perhaps some of some brands demean themselves in the promotion of their watchmaking, what they were fundamentally doing was getting their watchmaking out front and center. So to bring this back to Odomar Piguet, they were still in, they are and remain independent. So they could only have been aware that as, as group power played out through individual brand, the brand, strength of those brands would grow. So it was absolutely crucial that Odomar Piguet also grew. And I think uh, uh, Francois Benemias explained that, you know, one of, one of the great um, explosions in, 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 in Odomar Piguet has been in recent years. I mean, it has been in the, in the, in the growth factor around all of the disciplines in watchmaking, in marketing, in heritage, all of the tools required to allow Odomar Piguet to connect and to convey its story uh, at a time when there is, as I say, there is group strength in, in, in numerous brands operating um, under the sure. headings of, of these uh, of these international syndicates, it's very important that Odomar Piguet got that that clarity of vision uh, through and got that clarity uh, got that voice higher up in the mix. Turn the volume up, if you like. And I think turning the volume up without distorting is what <laughs> again to come back to the musical metaphor is kind of what what the, what the technology's been trying to do since day one as well. You know, you don't you don't want to disfigure the message when you when you amplify it. And I think that's. That's the challenge. It's not a challenge that Edmar Piguet faces alone either. I mean, I think that's the challenge for every brand, whatever, in whatever discipline, whatever sector of the, of the, uh, of the quality uh, product world, whether we call it luxury, whatever. But, you know, that, that's what everyone has to do now because there's so much, there's so much extraneous noise now, which is, which is uh, interfering with, uh, with what you and I would possibly consider to be the one true voice, which is the, is, is the history of high-end watchmaking. Bill, I feel like our show needs to be a three-part series. We only have like a few minutes left. I'm realizing <laughs> like we have barely got to so many of the things I want to talk uh, about with you. We're going to talk about media in general. 
we got so heady with that, and now with Autumn Arpigay, I mean, this is like a dissertation on uh, Royal Oakology. I mean, uh, maybe there needs to be a college class on this. Well, I, I, I think you could certainly... It's, I, it's no secret that uh, people are fascinated by um, uh, particularly, particularly technologies that have survived the kind of impact, uh, as I say, almost extinction-level impacts that the, the watch industry received straight to the gut. And not everyone survived to a great degree. Not everyone survived, but it reshaped, reformed uh, an industry. And that industry came back. And now, as we can see from any vector, like any stuff, um, stat, uh, stat, um, any vector you wish to place on it, uh, is stronger and, and bigger than ever. And it has created an entirely new marketplace, which is not, is not driven by the need to prominently display one's personal wealth meaning it doesn't have to rely on precious metals or, or even uh, high complications to have value. But it also, much more importantly, is evolved into an era where we don't even need a wristwatch. And many people consider themselves to be post-wristwatch or not interested in wristwatches. And yet the industry itself has, has absolutely no issue with that whatsoever because some of those people will see the error of their ways when they uh, when they realize what a wristwatch can do for their sense of self. And for the others, that's fine. There's enough business where we are. But it's absolutely fascinating to just to follow the line of where the mechanical, we're talking about mechanical watchmaking primarily here, that as you know, that there's a great value system building around cross watches once again. And we've seen that with various releases this year. And we'll see um, how products evolve generally in that area. But there is a great deal of interest. The dissertation, I feel, is in the human factor, the human the human nodes that, that that feed our sense of our need and desire for survival and how that inculcates in ourselves the need to create and to renew. And frankly, any one of us could be sitting pretty on on um, certain attributes that we feel we've achieved in our lives, whether they're personal, professional, physical, uh, material, um, but we tend not to. I mean, it's very unusual. We tend to want to strive and drive forward. And I think that's the real interesting uh, elements of this story. Fundamentally, we could be talking around a watch that genuinely had not changed in 50 years. And we're not. We're talking about a, a plethora of models. I mean, 850 models, 2,000 plus SKUs. Uh, we're talking about the concept watch. We're talking about the Royal Oak Offshore, which comes up to its own celebration next year, 30 years. So we're talking about something that never stood still. So going back to the 9-11 comparison, you know, we're not looking at a watch that in any way uh, uh, it embodies all of the qualities, all of the strengths that, that has allowed it to survive. But in, intrinsically, it's a very different watch. And, and that is the extraordinarily beguiling um, edifice with which we come back again and again and again and go how. And the how is what keeps us, I think, both you and I, are, as journalists, the how. The curiosity is to discover how does this happen? Why does this work? Why are people still talking about it? Um, why am I writing about it? Why, why are we doing this? That's what really keeps us all alive, I think. Let's end with a thought experiment. I propose that Audemars Piguet would be successful and smart to do the following. Take their case and their bracelet design and to put in a hardware smartwatch module and they would have the Royal Oak smartwatch. It's only a matter of time before someone else essentially does that, and they have the most legitimacy to do it. I think that, as you said, it's still a Royal Oak, and there's a market for it. 
obviously there'd be some naysayers, but as part of the thought experiment, let's talk about why this concept sort of would or wouldn't work. Would it still be a Royal Oak if it was also a smartwatch? Well, the same conversation was held in, at board level when um, when the decision was was to take the quartz module into the Royal Oak. I mean, there were those that felt strongly that Audemars Piguet had to stand for and could only stand as the maker of mechanical watches. But it was self-evident that not to offer the market, which was desperate for quartz watches because they were the newfangled thing, required a quartz watch. So um, the delivery system is 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 part of the process. The technology almost is I, I would argue it's kind of the least important element. So my okay, it's a thought experiment. I'll put it out there. I think why not? Why would you not do it? I mean, I think would would people be offended? Possibly. Would those people not buy it? Definitely. Would it stop other people from buying it? No. Um, I think the more the thought experiment I would follow is is a smartwatch a watch? And is a mechanical is a mechanical watch not smart? So do does one need the other to sustain itself? My suggestion is no. So I think a mechanical watch by its very nature, by its perpetual engineering system, is fundamentally smarter than a smart watch, which would die on the arm if it's not recharged currently. Um, at the same time, what would a smart watch bring to the wearer if it were in a Royal Oak? Nothing. I mean, other smart watches are available. So it's not to say it's, I'd, I'd hate to say this is a sort of a, a, t- a, t- a taste level conversation. It's not really about that. It's simply about, I think these are, I think these are entirely self-defining, uh, sectors of the market. And it, who knows? I'll be contradicted tomorrow and say that the, and we'll see a line of Royal Oak smartwatches. Who knows? But I, I think it's, un, it's not an undeliverable, but it's an unnecessary delivery. Should you put it that way? I, I, I don't think we'd in any way, crash the Royal Oak business where a smartwatch to be produced. But nor would I say there would be a requirement for a Royal Oak to carry a smartwatch module in order to maintain its relevancy because it's not based on the latest developments in wrist-worn technology. It never was. Okay. So that's my personal view. But um, what's yours, Ariel? Well, so let's dissect what you're saying. I think it's interesting. What I'm hearing is that for Audemars Piguet to remain successful, relevant, make money as a company... It's not something they need to do, and that inherently the smartwatch is not a threat to business stability. So, yes, you could do it, and yeah, it'd be successful, but we don't need to do it to make money or to protect um, our future. Right? That's sort of what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. I, I don't disagree, but there's a few elements that I'm thinking about that you may have not considered. One is that I think in the uh, in the future, maybe not like next year future, but maybe in the next 10 years, there's going to be a significant penetration of smartwatches in the market that consumers are going to have to make a real choice between which one they're going to want to wear. Some are going to wear both, but a lot of them are going to wear one or the other. And they're going to love it when there's the beautiful option, the smartwatch, but there's just going to be a lot of functionality that is probably going to prove quite convenient. And it's going to be hard for people to go without it for too long. That's one thing. Second, Audemars Piguet is the most legitimate uh, creator of the Royal Oak. They originated it. It's their name. They're on the rights around it. But uh, the bracelet, the bezel, the case, and things like that, a lot of elements other than the Audemars Piguet logo have been successfully produced by other companies. And a lot of the designs 
if they had sort of design patents around them and things like that expired a while ago. So the actual rights Audemars Piguet has to pre prevent others from doing this are limited. The only option they have is to get into the business themselves, and then if other people do it, go after them for sort of unfair competition and things like that. Because the rights of the design are not really theirs. They own the name and they have the legitimacy, but the point is that if they don't get into it, others might, and there would be not that much Audemars Piguet could do about it, if that makes sense. Obviously, those competitors couldn't call it the Royal Oak, but it could look a lot like it. Yeah, absolutely. But you put your finger on it, Ariel, when you were talking about the name and how much equity there is now in, in a brand's mark. And I think there's an interesting distinction to be made here because there's a similar process that's going on in the automobile industry, which is moving towards electric cars. And due to the uh, functionality of an electric car, uh, aerodynamics plays a hugely important role in, uh, in delivering range. And that's forcing cars to look increasingly the same. So how do the premium and luxury car brands uh, step out from this formula so they don't look the same, whilst having to retain a lot of these same qualities of aerodynamics? What they're doing is they're really investing in their mark. They're really investing in their name. And I don't think you can really make a direct comparison between the automobile industry and watch making because the automobile industry finally has to manufacture cars that sit within very, very tight guardrails regarding health and safety globally, which does force a form factor onto a car before you start to talk about aerodynamics. Uh, a watch brand has no requirement to go to that level of, 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 of sort of uh, an organizing principle which it has to share with other watches. So there's no reason why a watch has to be the shape and form it is. Uh, therefore, it's freed from that. And sorry, I'm losing my point here. My original point was that it's the brand and the name that really places the value on the piece. So were there to be a watch produced that, that followed the design codes of the Royal Oak that was also a smartwatch, that may well appeal to people. But the people who, who are interested in the Royal Oak, the Noda Marpige, would only wear a Royal Oak-derived design, um, wouldn't wear an Royal Oak-derived design because they'd want to wear a Royal Oak design that carried the name Odemar Piguet because there's so much value and equity in the name. So I think that's where the distinguishing features would fall between a, a derivative smartwatch design and a Royal Oak. Now, as I was saying, I think if, 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 the, if the Royal Oak customer demanded a, a smartwatch inside of all that case, then I'm sure Edmar Piguet would consider what the value proposition would have to be for that to happen, where the desirability for doing so would, would be. As we discussed, uh, the courts entered the Royal Oak in the, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. So there was a point at which they, they embraced quartz in the Royal Oak case. So it's not as if there's not been a precedent for incorporating te technological change inside the case of the Royal Oak, but they would fundamentally have to make a business case for producing a smartwatch. As we found with quartz as it entered the Swiss market, um, it wasn't, obviously, inevitably, it wasn't their proficiency, although the Swiss watchmaking world led the development of the uh, quartz uh, module, but it wasn't their proficiency having to maintain the technological uh, uplifts that were required to keep, to keep current around quartz production. So it didn't live neatly within the, uh, the ecosystem of Swiss watchmaking. Um, one could argue that the smartwatches may 
follow a similar formula. They're technological products that require constant updating and software is something that has to be constantly rewritten. So, you know, is this something of interest? Is there any value to doing it? My argument would be they would, they only Odomar Pigo could, could answer that question, but they would have to, you know, one would have to make the case that were they not to need to do so, why would they? I think the outcome of this conversation has been that the future of Audemars Piguet is not on autopilot. It requires a lot of careful decision-making, nuanced decisions within complex moving market conditions uh, that are above and beyond just manufacturing realities and quality control and customer service. Um, It's not easy to run a business like that. It's definitely not easy to decide what to do. the good news is that the market is often quite forgiving if you make, quote-unquote, the wrong product and you correct yourself, usually you're going to be totally fine. So I've always felt that brands uh, often are incentivized to experiment. That's obviously done very well for Audemars Piguet in, in its history. And I also want to say that uh, Bill Prince has other things he can talk about other than Audemars Piguet. He just happened to finish uh, a great book about it. And uh, we attended uh, a party for that book together here in Los Angeles. I know that's been a traveling event. So I think it's safe to say that we're going to have to have you come back um, for at least a part two here. Uh, But since we're out of time, just remind everyone where they can find more about you and anything else you'd like to plug right now. Thank you, Ariel. Yes, as you say, we met in um, Los Angeles not so long ago. It was really good to see you at an event that Odemar Piguet hosted for the launch of Royal Oak from Iconoclast to Icon, which is available now um, uh, from Asseline. Uh, uh, go to my link in bio, Bill Prince Inc. on my Instagram, and there's a link to the page. Uh, I would just say it's been fantastic speaking to you. As ever, Ariel, whenever we speak, uh, we can go into uh, we can go into the de- depths of mind experiments if we wish, but it's really really nice to be able to share some of the sort of uh, the bigger picture items that um, sometimes do get lost when we discuss particularly when we go into the long grass of models and and histories Um, it's nice to put it into the context of where do these products sit in the in in the universe where do they sit in not just in our lives but the lives of others and they are objects that we see bring people together and we get to talk about them as a result so I would just like to thank you for the opportunity to do so. I wish you well and yeah, roll on part two. Wonderful. My guest has been Mr. Bill Prince and you have been listening to Superlative Podcast. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blog2watch.com. <laughs>